Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church in Chula Vista, California. We invite you to open up your Bibles as we join Fred Dominguez for today's message. Well, good morning. Uh, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 26 this morning. And as you're turning there, what we've been answering the last couple of weeks as we've been in Galatians has been the question, Jesus died, so what? And that's what many non-Christians ask nowadays is, okay, so what? This Jesus died. So Paul spends about four chapters going through what it means, why it matters that Jesus died. Paul begins by saying that it's about faith and not works, that it's about what Jesus has done, not what we have done, his performance, not our effort, his perfection, not our best tries. Then he says that we're not under the law, that the rules and regulations of the Jewish religion no longer apply. He begins by telling us that now all of these different examples in the Old Testament lead up to Jesus liberating us. And he comes to the hinge passage in chapter 3, verse 26 through chapter 4, verse 7, where he says that we're not actually um, workers for God or soldiers of God, that we're his children. That the primary identity of the Christian is not one of work or fighting or striving, but of child. Like poop in your diaper, tantrum throwing, disobedient not always getting it, child. That is our relationship to our God, to our creator. And much like we sometimes as children bring uh, hardship onto our parents, God as father also brings provision and safety and comfort and nurturing. That the relationship of the Christian to the creator is not like that of all the other world religions. One of fear, one of intimidation, one of questioning, one of reservation. But that now, because of Christ, you relate to your creator as a child does to a father. And that's the launching point for the rest of Paul's letter, which says not just Okay, Jesus died for me, so what? But now, Jesus died for me, now what? We are going to transition from why does it matter that Jesus died for me? He answers that by saying, well, now you are a child of God. To saying, okay, how does that impact my life now today? I'm going to heaven when I die, but what does it make a difference in my life today? That's where we begin in chapter 5, verse 1. We talked about this last week. Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Paul begins his now what section of Galatians by telling us that the primary identity and posture of a child of God is one of freedom. That usually brings one of two reactions. When you talk about freedom in a religious setting, one of two things can go through your head. The first is for those of us that have been in church for a long time. We talked about it last week. There's a little bit of a fear. There's a hesitation. Because freedom and religion don't go together. 
we have this fear that if we do what we really want, we will never become like Jesus. We're afraid that if we let our kids, if we let our spouses, if we let our friends or our family members or our growth group do whatever they want, they will never choose God. And so when we talk about freedom, we don't like it because it's scary. It puts our spiritual growth out of our hands. We don't like freedom. And if you're not really into the church world, you're really skeptical when Christians begin to talk about freedom. Because we might talk about freedom, but we don't live like we're in freedom. Church is mostly associated with rules and regulations. What you cannot do, what you cannot say, what you cannot participate in. And so when you come to church and you hear people say, well, I am free in Christ, you go, well, it doesn't look like it. But Paul says, no, the primary identity of a Christian is one of freedom. Christian, don't be scared. Doubter, don't be skeptic. You are free. And that changes how you live your life. Because freedom isn't just do whatever you want and don't become holy. And freedom isn't a fake freedom. It isn't a just talk about it freedom. So this morning, we're going to begin by defining freedom. And that's by saying, like Paul did in chapter 4, that the one thing that matters is faith expressed in love. In other words, freedom is living life God's way, the best way. That God has a way, that your creator has a way for you to live your life. And when you and I match with our creator, we obtain our best life. It's like when we, you and I design something or when engineers make something or architects make a plan, they design it so that it works the best. And when you go off of the script, when you go off of the plan, things don't work as well as they ought. Much like that, we, us, too, when we live God's way, we live the best way. And that is true freedom. And Paul wants to describe three ways in which God wants to set us free. In other words, he wants us to live the best life we could ever live. He begins in verse 16 of chapter 5. He says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit. And the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you're not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Paul begins by primarily, by, by telling us that, that primarily our life is not done independently. That there is the difference between freedom and independence. He says, walk by the Spirit. That the best way to live is not an autonomous, independent life where you rule your own world, but where you walk independence with God by walking with Him. Like Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, like the people of the Exodus were led out of Egypt by God, literally walking them out. Like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 had a personal encounter with God himself and an angel came down and touched him. You and I must have a personal relationship with God, with the Holy Spirit, in a way in which he makes a difference, in which it's not about the rules and the regulations, but it's about the relationship 
and growth. Paul begins by telling us that our life, in order to be free, must be dependent on God. And he says that when this happens, when you and I live in dependence to God, when we live our very lives, our every days, depending on God himself, there is a promise. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's not a challenge. That's not an invitation. That's not an option. It is a promise. It is a fact. And, and, and I love that because it, it, what we're saying is that to live life God's way, independence to God, otherwise known as by God's strength. So when we live life God's way, by God's strength, we see God's power in our life. Do you believe that God can work a miracle in your life? Do you believe that God is actively wanting to change you, to mold you, to make you into a better version of you. That's not prosperity gospel. That's biblical theology. When God comes into your life, you change. When God comes into your life, everything is new. When you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. These desires are, Paul says, they desire what is contrary to the Spirit and the spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. So we need to ask ourselves, what are the desires of the flesh and what are the desires of the spirit? When we're talking about the flesh, some translations say the lust of the flesh. And unfortunately, what happens there is that we have the wrong connotation that the flesh only talks about sexual immorality. And while that is included, the desires of the flesh actually speak of something much deeper. A biblical theology of the flesh actually tells us that you and I, left on our own by nature and by choice, choose not to live in dependence to God. In other words, you can, you can define the desires of the flesh as the human soul left not living God's way, not living by God's strength, and not living with God's power. The desires of the flesh are what happens to the human soul. The flesh is what happens to the human soul without God. Martin Luther says that the things most forbidden we always desire, and the things most denied we seek to acquire. There's a great hymn, Come Thou Found, and it has a line in it that says, We are prone to leave the God we love. John Calvin stated that the human soul left on its own bends inward. You and I were designed for our souls to love God and love others, but instead we begin to ignore God and use others. And Calvin says that that is the definition of sin. So in, in other words, the, the flesh desires more of you in you. For your soul to continually bend to yourself, towards selfishness. Well, the spirit desires the opposite what is contrary to that. Before we talk about what the, des what the desires of the Spirit are, we must talk about who the Spirit is. The Spirit's not a, a feeling. The Spirit's not a conscience. The Spirit's not a hunch. The Spirit's not a force. We're not spiritual Jedis. The Spirit is God himself, the third member of the Trinity, indwelling in your heart, mind, 
and soul. It is He. He was present at creation. He was present in Jesus' ministry. And He will be present when Jesus comes back. And that Holy Spirit, Jesus says, in John chapter 14 through 20, I believe we had a sermon series on that called uh, Abide. There, Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes into your and I's life, the Holy Spirit will remind us of what Jesus has done and remind us of what Jesus has said. The Holy Spirit desires more of Jesus in you. And that's why it's contrary to the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh want your life to be by your ways, by your strengths, by your power. But the Holy Spirit desires for your life to be by God's ways, by God's strength, by God's power. And he, Paul says that that is in conflict with each other so that you're not to do whatever you want. Paul is stating the reality that sometimes in our faith there is struggle. Recently, I went to a seminar and there was this great speaker. He was great at saying some great things, but essentially his whole message was, if you're not willing to take a beating for Jesus, you're not really a Christian. And while that's really motivating some days, it's really debilitating other days. Because I can't even get up 30 minutes earlier than I should to read my Bible. And if the spiritual walk that I'm supposed to be on is always supposed to be on high, then I'm in trouble. And Paul states the reality that sometimes what we want and what God wants get in a fight. And sometimes we struggle. And Christians, we don't like to admit that because we think we're going to be judged by God and by other people. We think that if, if we admit to struggling, we're admitting that we don't really love God, that we don't really trust God, that we don't really want God. But I want to show you a timeline from the author of this book's life that I hope encourages you. In 54 AD, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth. And he told them, I am the least of the apostles. I'm the least of the Christian leaders. About nine years later, he wrote another letter to the church in Ephesus. And he told them, I am the least of the saints. See, I used to look at the pastors, Paul says, and I used to think I was the worst. Now I just look at all the Christians and think I am the worst. And two years later or so, he wrote a letter to the pastor in Ephesus, Timothy, right before his death. And Paul told Timothy, I'm the worst of them all. Paul used to say, I went to a pastor's conference, I was the worst one there. Then he said, I'm, I go to church and I'm the worst one there. Now Paul says, I just go out onto the block, and I'm the worst one there. What's going on with Paul? Is Paul getting worse? No. Paul's getting better by realizing how much worse he really is than he thought. See, the, the worse Paul thinks of himself, the more he sees Jesus as gracious in his own life. Paul is admitting to struggling the older he gets. The more he walks with Jesus, the more open he is about his struggles. Spiritual maturity is not 
losing that inward conflict and depending upon yourself for your spiritual growth. Spiritual maturity is an awareness of that inward conflict, that the spirit and the flesh are against each other, and that resulting in an upward dependence. Paul says, if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. In the moment of your temptation, in the moment of your failure, in the moment of your struggle, you are not under condemnation. If you're guided by him, you're not under the law, which says perform and get it right. Last time we were together, I shared with you how the law was like a weight scale. And when you step on it, it doesn't tell you that you tried hard to not eat the french fries and instead eat the salad. It just tells you how it went. And what's funny about a weight scale is that you and I can be the exact same weight, but one of us is excited and the other one of us is depressed. Because the weight scale doesn't take into account our goals or our effort. It just tells it like it is. So the law does. The law doesn't care how much you tried to be kind. The law doesn't care how much you tried not to lust. The law says either you did or you didn't. And Paul says that if you and I are led by the Spirit, if you and I trust God's power in our life, we don't have a relationship that needs to be perfect 100% of the time. We need to believe this. We need to believe that our relationship with God allows for room to struggle. It allows there to be room, not just for struggle, but for failure. Do you believe that you can go out and live for God and fail and he still loves you at the end of the day? Paul says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Paul wants us to know that God is after our motivation rather than our behavior. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul says, but before we get into what you do, I need you to understand that you want to have the motivation to do right and that allows you to have the space to fail and to struggle. It's only in that kind of relationship that we'll see the second part of our message, which is to, we are free to work new ways in verse 19 through 23. Paul says, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is telling us that our desires will leak into our decisions. What you and I want is what you and I will do. Ultimately, forcing ourselves to do something will only take us so far. Eventually, we will go back to what we truly want. And so Paul is going to give us two separate lists, two separate case studies of what happens in our lives when we want more of us in us or when we want more of Jesus in us. And he begins by telling us what happens when we want more of us in us. In other words, what happens when we don't trust God to provide the best life for us? <coughs> and we don't have the time to go through all of these separate 
sins and areas in our life. So I want to give you four categories that Paul brings up, and we'll talk about them briefly. The first category that Paul brings up that you and I begin to not trust God and trust ourselves to bring us our best life is sexuality. Sexual immorality is sexual conduct outside of marriage. Impurity is sex outside of God's design of marriage for a man and a woman. And debauchery is an obsession with sexual sin. That's the definition. So what does that look like in our lives? Well, since the sexual revolution in the 1960s and the outcome and the falling out of everything that came from that era, we have believed ourselves as a society and as a culture and as a world to be more liberated, to be more free, to be more tolerant. God is an ignorant bigot who didn't know what he was talking about when he made us. But today, 35% of women report being sexually assaulted. The physiological effects of pornography are stronger than marijuana and nearly as strong physiologically, chemically as crack cocaine. 23% of men and 17% of women in the United States have never been married. And God didn't make us to be spouses. God made us to be worshipers. So it's not wrong to not be married, but we have more children now in the city of Chula Vista born to single parents than ever before about a 30% increase in the last 10 years. There's more domestic violence in the city of Chula Vista than has ever been before. We had to create an entire task force at the police department to deal with it. And there's more family court hearings than any other court in our judicial system because we are free and we are liberated. And we finally figured it out. Some of us in here are going, ha ha, see, I knew it. Point, see, they are just sickos. Paul says, I got you next, church. He says, idolatry and witchcraft. The second category is religion. One of the ways in which you and I begin to tell God that we figured it out is through our religious work, through our spiritual lives. Idolatry is liking the show, but not liking God himself. I love the songs. I love the time together. I love what you teach my children. I love the things we get to do. I love the poor people we get to help. God changing something in my life? No, thank you. God telling me I'm wrong in an area of my life? No, thank you. I like it when God gives me something. I like it when God performs for me, but I don't like it when God has authority over me. And Paul then says witchcraft. Witchcraft, yes, you can think about, you know, getting a voodoo doll and doing witchcraft and Ouija boards and all that. But, but bigger than that is this. We love spiritual power. We just hate God's spiritual authority. So we poke him like a voodoo doll, heal me. We poke him like a voodoo doll, prosper me. We poke him like a voodoo doll, do as I say. But the moment that God comes into our lives and says, I'm going to be powerful, but not just in the things you want, but maybe in the areas of life that you don't want me in, we reject him. 
That's why in the city of Chula Vista, in the last census, I'm not going to give you statistics from some foreign place. Let's own it. Paseo del Rey, East J. 56% of the city of Chula Vista has no religious affiliation. They're not Buddhist. They're not Mormon. They're not Jehovah Witness. They're nothing. They don't want anything to do with our pony show. They are sick and tired of what we have made religion as a society and as a culture. We have taken God out of church. We have taken Jesus out of Christianity. And people aren't buying it. Because when you take God out of Christianity, when you take Jesus out of Christianity, you end up with idolatry, the show but not God, or witchcraft. God's a gimmick, but he has no authority. Thirdly, the largest section, Paul says, relationships. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, or um, factions and envy. He ends there. I think we know that we struggle with relationships. If we followed the Bible's instructions on how to love one another and be selfless and be giving instead of taking, we wouldn't have the relational issues that we have. Factions and envy, dissension. That's calling family members on the phone and going, well, which side are you on? Did you hear what aunt blah, blah, blah said? Did you hear what uncle blah, blah, blah said? Did you hear what your family member said? Did you hear what the neighbor said? Whose side are you on? Here's the deal. It's really hard to love somebody when you're sizing them up. It's really hard to love somebody the way Jesus wants you to love somebody when you're wondering where you're going to punch them next. And it's also really hard to punch somebody when you just ask Jesus how you can love them. When Paul talks about these categories for relational issues, the problem is, is we're trying to be better than other people. We want more of us in us. We want to be at the top. We want to stand up for ourselves. So that turns into the hatred, the discord, the jealousy, the fits of rage. It's hard to love somebody when you're sizing them up. And the last category is drunkenness and orgies. In other words, comfort. Comfort is not a bad thing, but it is a bad thing when you've made it a God thing. Anybody buy a house around 2008? More, 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 and more. What was happening? Your neighbor was getting a bigger house. Your neighbor was getting a newer car. Your family members were getting a bigger house. Your family members were getting a newer car, a newer house. And so what was happening is then we began to believe the lie that more stuff led to more joy. But now the average onset of clinical anxiety and depression in children is six years old. The average high schooler today has the same stress clinically, as a mental health patient in the 1950s. What has happened is we have believed that the more we do, the happier we'll be. That the more we have, the more joy we'll have in our lives. Because we know better than God, right? Because we finally figured it out. When we lead, 
that's what happens sexually, spiritually, relationally, materially. We run ourselves to the ground. Because when we leave our maker, when we leave our design, we lead ourselves to death. And that's what Paul says. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not threatening anybody. He's not saying you can lose your salvation. He's saying if you live your entire life not wanting God's input, don't be surprised when at the end of your life God's not there anymore. God's going to walk out of the room and you're not even going to notice, Paul says. When you want more of you in you, if you live an entire lifetime like that, don't be surprised when at the end of your life God's presence is not there. That's heavy. That needs to lead us to introspection. Where do I say in my life that I trust me more than God? Paul brings up four categories, but there's more. Maybe you need to start trusting God that it's more important to be here on Sunday mornings than at your kids' soccer games. Maybe, maybe the recital needs to take second place to their spiritual walk. Maybe your community group and your growth group needs to take more priority than your fourth vacation this year. Maybe, maybe you need to start trusting that God knows what he's saying about finances. Maybe you need to start actually trusting that God, when he had a plan and a design for your life, actually had your good in mind. He says it like this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul says there's a difference between work that can be performed and fruit which is produced. Work can be done in a factory. You bring workers in from the outside and they do it. Fruit must come from within. Fruit is not developed by the worker, by the harvester. Fruit is developed by the root, by the seed. And much like it could be an apple tree, and so you have an apple root or an apple seed. I don't know about fruit stuff. When Paul uses the phrase fruit of the Spirit, what he's saying is that the Spirit is the root, that the Spirit is the seed, and that the fruit will be the spirits. Your progress, it's out of your hands. And that's good news. Because left on your own, you have the works of the flesh. But when you give up on yourself and you begin to trust him, you have the fruit of the Spirit. I want to give you quickly six things about the fruit of the Spirit. The first three are that the fruit of the Spirit is internal, it is gradual, and it's inevitable. It's internal. Much like putting an apple on a dead apple tree will not make that tree alive, or putting an apple on, on an orange tree will not make that orange tree an apple tree. The fruit of the Spirit cannot be produced by your gifts. The fruit of the Spirit is talking about character. It is not talking about something that you do. It is talking about something that you are. There are passages that talk about gifts of the Spirit, spiritual gifts. But that's not this passage. It's not talking about how great you are. It's not talking about how much you can do for God. 
It's about what God has done in your life to actually change not just what you do, but who you are. Secondly, the, spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is gradual. One of the things I love about my wife is that she loves to do gardening and all that kind of stuff. One of the things I have the most frustrations about with my wife is that she likes to do gardening and all that kind of stuff. She absolutely loves to turn our patio into a dirt field. And every couple of weeks, I go out into our patio and somebody dropped off a cucumber. I don't know how it happened, but all of a sudden, when there was dirt, where there was dirt, now there are flowers. Where there was dirt, now there's cucumbers and peppers and all kinds of stuff. But you know what's really frustrating? Sitting outside on the patio and watching that thing grow because it doesn't happen overnight. And some of us treat our spiritual life like that. Some of us get really frustrated because we're the same as we were last week. How would your spiritual life be different if you stopped comparing yourself to last week and maybe you started comparing yourself to five years ago? Maybe you don't think God's working in your life because you have too short of an attention span or, or, a, or a memory span. I have a... Uh, Matt Bolt, he's the worship pastor here. He's up at Man Camp. Um, he has said before, at high, in high school, you were difficult to work with, to deal with. Now he kind of puts up with me every once in a while. Right? If I compare myself to last week and how I failed Kate, my wife, last week, I can get really discouraged. But if I remember that, hey, in high school, I was like 100 times worse, and now I'm getting better. I see the gradual work of the Spirit in my life. There's still room to go. There's still growth to be had. But there's encouragement when we know that God works gradually, much like fruit. God's not a factory worker popping devotion out. He's after more. He's after an internal growth. He's after a long-lasting growth. And it's inevitable I have a 10-month-old Belgian Shepherd mixed puppy. No matter how much I try and no matter how many snacks I don't give her, she keeps growing because living things grow, whether good or bad. The works of the flesh will continue to grow in your life. You will get worse, but the fruit of the Spirit will also continue to grow in your life. You will get better. And that's good news. When the Spirit is at work in your life, when you turn over your life to Jesus, you can be confident that it might be slow, but that it is sure. It will happen. And it will happen in three areas. Upward, outward, and inward. Love, joy, and peace reference our relationship with God. The fruit of the Spirit changes your character and your posture towards God. It changes why you come to church and how you come to church. God wants to change why you read your Bible and how you read your Bible, why you pray, how you pray, why you give sacrificially, why, how you give, why you serve, how you serve. God wants to change the motivation in your life for why you come to church. We're not after begrudging submission at Paseo Del Rey Church. We're after the fruit of the Spirit, developing love, joy, and peace. And it's outward. Not only does your relationship with God change, but your relationship with others changes when God comes into your life. You have forbearance or patience, kindness, and goodness. We need more good people in this world, amen? 
when God comes into your life, other people benefit. Let me ask you another question of introspection. Does your family, do your friends, do your coworkers benefit because you are a Christian? Not because you're funny, not because you've got gifts. Again, that's work, that's outside. No. Do they benefit because you're a Christian? Because you love Jesus. Because there's something different about you, about your character. Not about what you do, but who you are. And lastly, it's inward. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Does your character now, who you are on the inside, change? Have you become a different person? God will make it so. Why? How? See, Paul says that we have an inheritance. Paul says that we have now everything that God the Father gave, gave to Jesus. See, our fruit is actually a reflection of who Jesus is. This happens because Jesus came to love the unlovely. Because he came to give joy to the brokenhearted. Because he's the prince of peace. Because he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Because he's kind to those who draw near to him. Because he is good to those who revile him. Because he is faithful in the face of pain. Because he's gentle and lowly in heart. Because he is self-controlled and is willing to go to the cross for you and for me. The fruit of the Spirit is not a reflection of a better you. The fruit of the Spirit is a reflection of your perfect God and Savior. Paul says, against such things there's no law. You can't legislate love. There's no need to limit. Laws restrict. There's no need to limit the fruit of the Spirit. The more fruit of the Spirit we have, you can't have too much of it. A couple of years ago, uh, over five years ago now, it's crazy, I got the uh, blessing to go to Finland and work with a couple of church plants. And I was talking to different people. One of the, one of the most heartbreaking things about the state of the church in, in Finland is that the official church, the, the uh, Lutheran church, wanted a way to make sure people were more devoted. To the church. And so what they ended up doing was they actually ended up making it mandatory to have a membership fee to go to church. If you wanted to get buried in the church or get married in the church, you had to be paying your fee. And interestingly enough, it did the opposite. More people dropped out of church. More people were upset at the church. More people didn't want to be around the church. Because when you force something, it fails to become what was so beautiful about it. It'd be the equivalent of me going up to Kate, my wife, and saying, God says I'm supposed to be a one-woman man, and we've made a covenant for life. There's a couple of girls at work that I'm really interested in. There's a couple of girls at the store that I saw that were really attractive. But God says I need to be married to you forever. Happy anniversary. That wouldn't go over very well. That wouldn't be a very nice dinner to be at. But sometimes we treat our relationship with God like that. 
God, I don't like what you say. I don't like your authority in my life. I don't like what you have to do in my life. I don't like the change that you're bringing about in my heart. But I don't want to go to hell, so I guess I'll do it. See, God wants to develop in you the desires that lead to your decisions that go after Jesus. That develop a love for him, a love for others, and a change in your own heart that reflects God himself. The Holy Spirit wants more of Jesus in you. That will ultimately lead to our last part of our passage. We're free to walk new paths. Verse 24 through 26. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with this Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Paul wants to finish by telling us that, yes, it is a fact. Christ Jesus has crucified our sins. Our sins died with Jesus on the cross. But if you looked at the original language, and I can't, but people smarter than me and books that are all about this kind of stuff say that the have crucified is actually a past tense and a present tense. What does that mean? Who cares? There's a role for you. You're not just invited to look up to Jesus. And Jesus is not just looking at you saying, okay, well, what can you do now? Jesus is saying, I'm going to bring the Holy Spirit into your life so you can be actively participating in the growth of your life. God isn't just going to magically do it for you. Not because he doesn't want to, but because he wants to bring you joy. And he's inviting you and me into that work. He wants you and I to be participating in the work of putting the flesh to death and bringing the Spirit to life in our life. That's why our flesh doesn't need motivated or refocused or recalibrated or re-educated. God wants to kill what wants to kill you. God wants to actively go to work against the very things that pull you away from him. And he's saying, I want you to participate in that work. I want you and I to go to work together. Every single day as a Christian is go to work with dad day. He wants to kill what wants to kill you, and he's saying, will you work with me? It will be a privilege for us to participate in the God of the universe inviting us into his cosmic great plan. Wow. He says, how are you going to do this? Two ways. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Okay? You have to leave the old behind to take hold of the new. When we're talking about progress, one of two things can happen. One, you do it and you become proud and religious, or you don't do it and you become depressed and you just end up giving up. Paul says, no, 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 no. If you live by the Spirit, Keep in step with the Spirit. Don't focus on yourself. Let Him take you where He wants to take you. Let Him change you where He wants to change you. What, what, the idea of step with the Spirit is draw near to Him. Match your cadence to, uh, to Him. Talk to Him. 
relate to him. Be close enough to him that you can hear him. Be close enough to him that he can hear you. I had a, for those of you that are in the military, uh, the police department is a paramilitary organization. So we had to do drill a lot at the academy. And I'm an analytical nerd kind of guy. So when you tell me to do something, I ask why, which didn't really go over well with a drill sergeant. What would happen is we'd all be in formation and he'd say, you know, we're going to the left. And, and I would think about it. And what that would do is that would delay me a couple of seconds. And so I would throw, up the, throw off the entire formation. And I had a drill sergeant pull me aside. And after he said some choice words that I can't repeat in the pulpit, and I did some push-ups, he pulled me over to the side and he said, I need you to trust me, listen, and go. Listen and go. If you and I trust Jesus, we need to listen and go. Sometimes we overcomplicate things when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we just need to listen and go. Sometimes we overcomplicate things because we don't want to listen or we don't want to go. But in the scriptures, God has spoken. So listen. And when you hear him, go. He wants you to, just in Galatians, you would know that he wants to walk you over to Jesus for you to cry, Father. He wants to remind you that you're a child of God, that you're justified, that you're at peace, that you're secure, that you're safe, that you belong. The Spirit wants you to keep in step with him because he's going to go, hey, remember when Jesus said this? Hey, remember when Jesus did this? Hey, remember when Jesus said this about you? Remember when Jesus did this for you? But you need to be close enough to listen and go. And that happens primarily through scripture reading. But that also happens through community. He finishes the passage with this. Let's not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. The freedom that God calls you and me to is not a freedom from self, for, for, it's, it's, it's a freedom from self-preference. It's a freedom to love. When we become conceited, we tell others that we're better than them and we can prove it. When we envy others, we're saying that they're better than us and we hate them for it. But instead now, we don't have to do that because when we keep in step with the Spirit, He develops the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, and the self-control to be able to say to one another, you're a child of God, I love you, and now I get to let God use me to love you through me. See, freedom is not self-interest. It's crucifying the flesh, turning to Jesus, and then turning toward others. Keeping with the Spirit doesn't mean grasping for power and position, but giving up to raise one another into a position of grace. So I would encourage you to become a regular. Become a regular at church where you get to hear the goodness of Jesus, when you get to be reminded of the goodness of the Spirit in your life so you could keep in step with Him. And secondly, sign up for a growth group. Get into community with people where you'll be tempted to be conceited. You'll be tempted to be provoked. You'll be tempted to envy. But if we live by the Spirit, we will keep, keep in step with the Spirit, and we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
in community, you'll learn to love the unlovable, to have joy in the midst of suffering. You will have peace in the midst of hard times. You will learn to be patient with those who are not patient. You will be kind. You will learn to be kind. You'll have the opportunity to be good to those around you. You'll, be, you'll have the opportunity to be faithful. You'll, be, you'll have the opportunity to be gentle. And you'll be able to develop a self-control. And the most beautiful part is, they will too. You and I were meant to reflect our God, not just in the fruit of the Spirit, but in the community of God. He is a triune God. He made you to be in community. You will not become like him unless you live like he wants you to live. But that's the best way to live, in community, drawing near to him, saying, I want to want what you want. I want to work the way you want me to work. And I want to walk a new life, the, the life you want me to walk. See, now you and I can run to Jesus at the cross and leave our sins there. But then we get to run with the Spirit toward the kingdom. We don't just get stuck at the cross and our sin. We get to run with the Spirit toward the kingdom and freedom. And the beautiful gospel-saturated life is now you get to turn around to somebody else and say, will you come too? Go to Jesus to the cross. Come with me toward the kingdom. There's a great hymn that says, I will rise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms. The 10,000 charms, fruit of the Spirit, loving one another, and community. And that is a good life. That is a free life. That is good news.